Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 72. We have entered into the No Fun Sir portion of the Milwaukee Brewers schedule. Not anymore, though, is it? Is it? No, not by No, it's not fun anymore. Not even a little bit. Zero fun, sir. All right. It was fun. We were having fun. Not a lot since the month of April, and definitely not right now in a six-game losing streak. After a day off on Thursday, the first series of the year with the Pittsburgh Pirates, who just got swept and only have a half-game lead on the Brewers in the NL Central, despite the fact that the Brewers haven't won in literally over a week. We will talk about the NBA champion Denver Nuggets, the third most popular podcast on B93. Got to cash a couple of tickets with that Nuggets win on Monday. I was happy. You know who didn't seem happy? Nikola Jokic, the finals MVP, a very subdued celebration with some very funny quotes that we'll play for you. We blogged about those two. We will break that down. The U.S. Open is underway. We're riding with the Spaniard, John Rahm again. He cashed us our biggest, second biggest ticket of our gambling career. And that was at the Masters, riding with him again. He was okay on the opening round on Thursday, but a couple of 62s at the U.S. Open? Are you kidding me? Round two is underway as we are recording this. And we'll wrap up with a conversation about the Chicago Bears and Justin Jones. You may not have heard of that name. I had not until this week. Most Bears fans probably do not know who Justin Jones is. But he was chirping Packer fans after Bears practice this week. We'll play a little bit of that. And a local Sheboygan radio DJ wins the biggest race of his life at the Sheboygan Ace game last night. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's the yes. Yes. Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin, record-breaking run. Morgan, a smash up the middle, base hit the center, here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's a interception, and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in, backed away, it's stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul, and a pinnacle ball throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there, and they're the champions. They have done it. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. Yeah, we had our Midwest Communications Night with the Sheboygan A's last night. It's about the sixth or seventh year that we've done that. And it's pretty simple. We put free tickets to the game at our front desk. We promote it for a couple of weeks. People can come by and get as many tickets as they want for the game. We try to pack Wildwood Park. And then we do some fun giveaways in between innings throughout the course of the night. And it's kind of one of their biggest nights, I think, at Wildwood Park. And we have a great time, too. And we've sort of made that a mid-year holiday party, I guess you'd call it, or get-together for the office here. That was last night. And it was a bit brisk. We were in the Skybox area at Wildwood Park. They've got a party deck now that they've added. And there is, I guess you'd say, a quote-unquote luxury box there. Maybe using that term a little bit loosely. But it is really nice. Got some tables in there. You get good seating and air conditioning, which is what you'd use most of the time. The heat was on last night. That's how chilly it was. It was barely 50 last night. But we were enjoying ourselves, and then one of the interns for the A's came up, as they frequently do, to that box area or the party deck to find people to take part in those little gimmicky things they do in between innings. Every minor league team or amateur league team does that. You keep the crowd interested and invested in between the innings as they're changing out offense for defense. 
And they talked us into, three of us from the building here, into doing the inflatable mascot races. I tried to avoid it. I tried to avoid that kind of stuff overall. But they got myself, our buddy Jeff over at the point, and one of our longtime studio engineers, Finch, to take part in that. There were three inflatable costumes. There was a Tyrannosaurus Rex with anatomically correct short arms. There was a shark and a cow. I took the cow because it had a wide open face and you can breathe. I felt bad for our buddy Jeff. The shark costume, he was totally enclosed. And even though it was a cool night, things could heat up pretty quick. I was warm in the cow costume, but I can't imagine what it was like in the shark costume. We had to race from first base around the outfield grass to third base, which is longer than you think when you've got an inflatable costume on. And it was. It was the biggest race of my life. The big race. Oh, the big race. Yes. Yes. (laughs) You were there? And I sold out for the victory. I did. I put the afterburners on. I was stretching. I got razzed for stretching when I got back up to our party area. So what were you doing out there stretching? I said, look, it's my 39th birthday today as we're recording this on Friday. I said, when you're pushing 40, it would be so appropriate for the headline in tomorrow morning's paper, if you read the paper, to be local radio DJ tears hamstring a day before his 39th birthday in inflatable mascot race. It's a word salad title, I'll give you that. But I've seen people my age do far worse things to themselves, not prepping and doing a small little race or a little gimmick like that. I wasn't going to go down like that. I turned on the afterburners as we went around second base and took home the title, which came with it, the $10 gift certificate to be used at the A's Pro Shop, which I did actually use to buy myself a Sheboygan ASAP. You can't give a Sheboygan a gift certificate and not expect me to use it. I probably wouldn't have spent the $15 had I not got that certificate, so I guess in a way they win. But it was a lot of fun. There's video of that on our Facebook page and on my Facebook page. My wife, Lindsay, videotaped it, and she is cackling the entire time. Now, our buddy Jeff in the shark costume, he bit it at the end. He tried to sell out to get me by a fin right at the end of it, trying to dive across the finish line and got himself tripped up and ate it. And then I think he broke the inflating mechanism inside of the shark costume. Shark may be retired for the end of the year. It's kind of like their version of the sausage race. I can understand why people struggle with the sausage race after doing that last night. That was just an inflatable. It's hard to move in those things. I cannot imagine how top-heavy those racing sausage costumes are, especially the chorizo. And I've talked to some people that have done the sausage race in the past. The chorizo in particular with the sombrero hat, the urban sombrero, is extremely top-heavy. I learned that lesson just in the loose inflatable cow costume last night. I can't imagine running that far in those gigantic sausage costumes. So I, I have more of appreciation for those that do take part in the sausage races. All right, with that, we'll talk a little Brewers. It is no fun right now. It's just we're not having fun. That's okay. It's a long baseball season. You do get to junctures where you're just not having fun of any kind. What's amazing about baseball to me, if you go back to last week, it feels like a month ago. When's the last time they won a game? Last week, Wednesday, when we were in the skybox, in the in the luxury box of the Brewer game. I told my wife the last two games we've gone to was the luxury box of the Brewer game and the luxury box with the Sheboygan Ace. We're only doing luxury boxes from here on out. But we were there that Wednesday. They pounded the Orioles 10 to 2. They gave or they hit 17 or 18 hits with the walks. They had been on base 20 plus times. Corbin Burns was dealing. They had the series win against a really good team going for the sweep last week, Thursday. It felt like the vibes were really turning. And like that, it flips the other way. They had the lead on Thursday last week going for the sweep. They blow it. 
And then who would have thought what happens after that is getting swept by the A's, historically bad team, although they've been hot too. They just had a seven-game winning streak broken up by the Tampa Bay Rays later this week or earlier this week. But they had been one of the hottest teams in baseball. In fact, I think the Royals now have the worst record in baseball. But you blow that game against the Orioles, and then you get swept by a horrible A's team. Day off in Minnesota on Tuesday. It looked like they were going to get back on the right track on Tuesday. They did everything right on Tuesday for eight and a half innings. They got runs early. Yelly had a two-run double and a two-run bomb. They got runs early. They got insurance runs late when the game got a little bit closer. And you hand the ball to Devin Williams in the ninth inning with a 5-3 to three lead. He had only given up one run the entire year. He had not blown a save. You're feeling pretty good about being in that spot. All right, three outs. We get the win. You can kind of wash away a little bit of that A series and start to refocus and lock in a bit. And then when you know it, Devin just has one of those nights that every closer has, and he's going to have a few of those over the course of the year. The timing of this one, though, is just backbreaking where you're coming off of getting swept by the A's. It looks like you're about to get a win, and then that's the moment where he has a bad turn. But it's going to happen. It's hard to blame Devin. He's probably going to be their only all-star this year. And like I said, had only given up one run, and we're in the middle of June, and had not blown a save. It's just the timing could not have been worse. He didn't have it at all. It went, what, home run, single walk, two-run walk-off bomb that Carlos Correa just crushed to left field. That's a brutal loss on Tuesday. Then Wednesday, you jump out to the early lead with Colin Ray on the hill. 2 nothing lead, back-to-back bombs from Luis Urias and Brian Anderson. But Ray had one bad inning, and he really wasn't that bad, and he's been better, as we've talked about. They had won his last four appearances. He had notched three wins in that run. And five innings of four-run ball from a basically a career AAA guy? I don't know. That's not bad. He had one bad inning, but the Brewers could not hit after those back-to-back home runs. And they dropped Thursday's game 4-2, to had a day off on – or had dropped Wednesday's game. No, yeah. Played Tuesday, Wednesday, and then off on Thursday, and then back at it tonight. But it's a brief two-game sweep at the hands of the Twins. The Brewers do not play well at Target Field. I'd have to go back and look up what their actual record is there since Target Field opened. It feels like a house of horrors. Thank God they only play there twice a year, and it's not like the old AL Central days where you're playing there probably seven or eight times a year. It's not a place where they have played well. And now you're sitting at 500, 34 and 34. They were 18 and 9. Since then, they have the third worst record in baseball and a winning percentage sub 400. And with the two off days, it gave Brewer Twitter plenty of time to ruminate on all of the bad things like that stat that have happened. And you saw plenty of it on Wednesday after the loss in the afternoon and on Thursday on the off day talking about does this team need to start to look at being a seller come trade deadline? I just can't do it. I know maybe that's the right move. And when we get to September, if they're out of it by seven or eight games, yeah, maybe I'll look back and say, well, maybe in June they should have probably started to think about that. Or maybe in July they should have started to contemplate selling off some of their bigger pieces and getting prospects. I just can't do it when you're a half game out of first place after the Pirates get swept, and we're only 40% of the way through the year. That's where we're at. I think technically you're 41% of the way through the year. It's June 16th, and I know we did the same (laughs) spiel on Monday or Friday or both Friday and Monday about not being far enough into the year to wave the white flag. I just can't do it. That could just be a fundamental flaw. That could be me having an irrational brain. But when you're still 
very much in the division race. I cannot see waving the white flag right now. And I got to be honest, I don't even know what that would look like. Corbin Burns, we've talked about this. We discussed this before the year even began. If you are going to be a seller, the trade value of the big three trade chips that you have, Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, and Willie Adamas will not be higher than it is at the deadline this year because teams can get them this year, make a run, then they can either keep them for next year, sign them to an extension, or if they're a small market team like the Brewers and they're just adding because they want to make one stab at it this year, they can recoup some of their losses by trading that player then again this offseason and giving some other team a one-year run with them or a chance to sign them to an extension. The value will not be higher than the deadline this year. That's why in April when they were off to such a hot start, I was thinking, and we talked about it on the podcast, good. They got off to this great start that takes them out of the seller equation to the trade deadline. Well, since then, things have not been all that great, and the selling conversation has started anew. I do wonder, though, Burns would still bring you back a boatload. He's not at the Cy Young level that we saw a couple of years ago, but he has been really good recently. And he would bring you a bunch. Woodruff, I still think, brings you a bunch back, even with the injuries. I don't know. When is he coming back? I have heard so little about an actual date for him to start throwing or to begin a rehab assignment. We're getting close to that end of June, early July marker that they had been talking about since he went down. But I have not heard much of an update since then. We know he had a little bit of a setback. What that means In terms of, is he back in early July, mid-July? Are we looking at the trade deadline now as the time where we would get Brandon Woodruff back in a full-go situation? He would still, even with the injury, probably bring you back some high-level prospects. But Willie Adamas, I don't know what he gets you right now. What do you think Willie gets you? Before the year, I would have thought Willie gets you as an everyday shortstop who plays sparkling defense, hits for power. I would have thought he would be right there with Burns in terms of return because he's an everyday player. But he just has not been very good this year. He's barely batting above 200. His OPS is under 700. He does have 10 home runs. He still plays really good defense. And a part of the more recent struggles may well be the ball that he took off of his head when he was just watching the game. What was that, a week or two ago? I would imagine going through something like that, it's hard to get locked back in mentally and watching 98-mile-an-hour fastballs coming at you, even though it's something he's done his, his whole life. There has to be some effect of taking one of those right off the head when you're not looking 100% at the plate. You do wonder if that's going to be a part of his struggles for a while right now, but I just don't know what Willie gets you. I don't know what you're bringing to the Pawn Stars bargaining table there with Willie Adamas batting 203 and an OPS of 680. I'm sure somebody out there would still pay, maybe not premium, they'd still pay hoping that he gets a jump start by moving to a different team. You can always bank on his defense for the most part, so that's a part of why you would acquire Willie Adamas, but I'm not sure what kind of prospect load he brings back to you. But those conversations are happening again because the team just has not been good, and the argument from the people that want to sell, and it's not totally invalid, I just can't bring myself to do it in the middle of June. The argument is the team started hot, But this is what they are. We saw it last year. We saw it the year before. The offense is not good enough. And the division is bad. But the argument from the sellers is don't let being in a bad division cloud your vision as to what this team is. Sure, the Brewers could win 83 or 84 games and win this division because the division is so bad. But they are not going to beat a good team in a best-of-five or a best-of-seven playoff round because they're just not consistent enough and they're not good enough. They may be good enough to win a horrible division, but... If that's all you're looking to do, 
then what's the point? If all you can do is win 83 or 84 games, win the division, and get swept in the first round, their argument is why not just sell, get a ton of prospects, reload the farm system, and then hope for two or three years down the road when Sal Fralick is up, when probably Jackson Churio, the number one prospect in baseball, and he's up. Hopefully you get a couple of pitching prospects along the way or you find some guys in these trades. If you're thinking World Series, the argument from the sellers is this is not a World Series team. This may be win a crappy division team, but not a World Series team. So why not just hit the reset button when you have a chance to get a nice haul back this trade deadline? You know what? I'm kind of talking myself into it. I was just faking the argument for that side. It does have a lot of points to it, though. Man, did I just talk myself into selling? No, no. I cannot do it in the middle of June. I simply cannot do it. If this team is five or six games under 500 when we get to the middle of July and they're maybe four or five games back or six games back in the division, then I think there's a real conversation to be had. But they have basically from now, they have a month. From now until July 16th or July 20th or whatever, they have to find a way to get hot and probably to prove that not only can they win the division, but they can maybe do something in the playoffs should they get there. If they can't do that in the next 30 to 35 days, then you probably really do have to talk about selling. But there is some time here where they can maybe get things on the right track. The one good piece of news this week, Wade Miley's coming back. He will be back on Saturday. Julio Tehran makes the start tonight. Yelly's been good. He's been really good. This is as good a version of Christian Yelich as we have seen since probably 2019, right before he shattered the kneecap. He's still not hitting for the power we saw that year. But he is hitting for better power than last year or in 2021. He's got nine home runs. He only had 14 all of last year. He is multi-hits almost in every game. He's batting well over 300 in May and June combined. His OPS is around 900 in May and June combined. He's stealing bases. He's getting on. And he's ripping doubles and hitting some home runs here and there. This is as good as he has looked. He's the best player on the team. I don't know what that tells you about the team, but this is he is the best player on the team, and this is the best version of Yelich that we have seen in many years. He was batting when he hit that double in Minnesota on Wednesday. He was 2 for his first two. He was hitting 271 after that. That's the first time we've seen his average above 270 in a long time. That's a little bit of silver lining in addition to getting Miley back this weekend way before they thought they'd get him back. Just little bits of silver lining, but not a lot, not a whole lot. See if they can get on track tonight. It's the first matchup of the year between the Pirates and Brewers. They have been the two teams jockeying back and forth in the NL Central. The Reds are right there, too. They've won five in a row. They're only a half game behind Milwaukee. But for how bad the week was, the Brewers enter plates on against the Pirates, a half game out of first place. Julio Tehran on the hill. You sweep them this weekend, and you come back on Monday. You're two games up in the division again. But again, is it a team that can just win a bad division? Maybe. They get after it tonight. Julio Tehran, Wade Miley, and then I'm pretty sure Corbin's right back on the hill on Sunday. Let's talk about Nikola Jokic and the NBA champion Denver Nuggets. We cashed two tickets, baby. Uh, It took me the entire playoff run betting against Jimmy Butler, but finally in the last round, we won not one but two bets that basically gets us back to even after betting against Jimmy in the first round and betting against Jimmy several times over against Boston. Luckily, the Nuggets were able to lock it down. Miami had, what, a 10-point lead or an 8-point lead right before halftime? And I'm watching the game thinking, these guys are going to do exactly what I said they were going to do on the podcast. They're going to find a way to win. And the Nuggets weren't shooting well, which is what we said on Monday's podcast. The only thing that could hinder them is that they have one of those bad shooting nights. 
it kind of looked like all that stuff was going to happen, but they got it together in the third quarter, got a lead, never broke away, still tight late. Nuggets were down one with under two minutes to go, but they scored the final six points of the game. They win 94 to 89. It was a rock fight. That was an 80s, 90s NBA rock fight on Monday. But the Nuggets get the win. Nikola Jokic is named the finals MVP. And then <laughs> Nikola Jokic, he just wanted to go home. The first interview Lisa Salters did with him, he said, the job is done, now we can go home. And she laughed, and he kind of laughed. And Jokic has, if you don't follow the NBA, Jokic has this type of persona where it's just a job to him. He's very good at it, and there are plenty of people in America that are very good at what they do, but maybe they don't necessarily love what they do. They just happen to be very good at it. Jokic seems like one of those guys. He likes basketball, I'm sure. He's extremely talented. He sees the game on a different level. But his approach is like he's doing a 10-hour shift at a coal mine. It's just a nine, like he's an accountant. Nothing seems to get him too high or too low, which can be a very good thing over the course of a long season and a long playoff run. But he has that notorious persona of, eh, I'm not overly impressed with this whole thing. And then at the end of the game, and at the end of the celebration, he was doing his post-game presser, and a Denver reporter suggests to him that he will be happier come parade time. His reaction to the notion of a parade is... You said you were surprised that you didn't feel more. So I'm curious what you are feeling right now and if you're looking forward to a parade coming up in Denver. When is parade? When is parade? Thursday. No. I need to go home. I I need to get out of here. I need to go home. He just looks so exasperated. He gives off this heavy sigh. I need to go home. I just want to go home. It looked to me in that interview like the thought of a parade had never crossed his mind, and he just thought he was going to celebrate that night, hop a red eye back to Serbia on Wednesday morning, and be back home hanging out with his family and his horses. He talked about that on NBA TV. He's got horses he races in Serbia that he clearly wants to get back to. They have horse races on Sunday. And when NBA TV interviewed him, he said, God, I don't even know how I'm going to get back there. I've got to leave maybe on Friday. (laughs) He was just, he wanted no part of it. To his credit, though, at the actual parade yesterday in Denver where there were a million people out there, he did have this to say. There's going to be an F-bomb in here, okay? He looked like he was having a very good time. Let me just see if I can get the audio up here. He says, parade, but I fucking want to stay on parade. He had a great time at the parade. He really enjoyed it once he got there. That's kind of a personality trait, though, for some people, right, where you dread doing social things or doing or having a get-together and your whole day or night leading up to actually doing it is anxiety, and then once you're a beer or two in, you feel pretty good. That's what it seemed like happened to Nikola Jokic once he finally got to the parade on Thursday. But I could not help but laugh. There's also a video of him I put on the blog on Tuesday of him with a champagne bottle. Now, you think of celebrations for any team when they win a championship. They're shaking the bottle up with vigor and popping the cork, and there's champagne flying everywhere. They give him a champagne bottle, and he gives just this limp-wristed shake and then kind of saunters off into the background. It was a very funny celebration from Jokic on Monday. I was happier than him just for cashing two gambling tickets. So the NBA season now in the rearview mirror, the offseason hot stove is already cranked up, and it does involve the Bucs, the big rumor this week. It looks like the Washington Wizards are going to try to burn things down to the ground, which they should. They barely made the play-in tournament this year. Did they even make that? I don't even think they made that. 
And they have a lot of money invested in Bradley Beal, a perennial all-star, in Kristaps Porzingis, Kyle Kuzma. They've got some names there. How did they not make the play-in tournament? They didn't. Must have had injuries or bad defense or something. But Bradley Beal is the biggest name, and it sounds like they are going to want to try to deal him so they can begin the process of burning it down, getting draft capital, getting young players, and then starting again in two or three years. But Beal is the biggest chip there. The Bucks have been connected to him by Brian Windhorst, by Shams, and all the tweets they had all week. It sounds like right now the two teams that are most likely to try to acquire Bradley Beal are the Miami Heat and the Milwaukee Bucks. Beal's camp apparently has said that Miami is his preferred destination, and he has a full no-trade clause. That's a part of the contract he signed going last year. He's one of the highest-paid players in basketball, by the way. He has a full no-trade clause. So he can decide where he wants to go. The Wizards could put a trade together and he could say, I don't want to go there. I would prefer to go here. If that's true that Miami is the place he wants to go, maybe he would nix a trade. I don't know that he would. A chance to play with Giannis, even if it's not a city he wants to live in or a franchise he wants to go to, a chance to maybe win a title would sway him a bit. But he does have the full no-trade clause. That'll be a part of the storyline going forward too. But those are the two teams that we've heard right now, the Miami Heat and the Milwaukee Bucks. What the Bucks are actually going to do here, I don't know. We talked many times already about how if there's going to be a major roster shakeup, it's going to have to be via trade because they just don't have the financial wiggle room to do anything. They're going to have to sign Middleton to an extension because they can't use that money anywhere else. Same with Brooke Lopez, and it sounds like Brooke wants to stay. My guess is they'll get that done too. But we talked on last week's podcast about maybe this is a situation where because of the financial constraints that you're just going to end up running back the same roster as last year with a different coaching staff, with a different coaching philosophy, hopefully with a staff that's more willing to adapt and adjust come playoff time, and maybe that would be enough. Maybe if they had that type of a coaching staff this year that could have adjusted to the heat in round one and adjusted to how on fire Jimmy Butler was defensively, maybe they avoid having that big first-round upset. You know what I mean? Maybe they won't have to have a big roster shakeup. Maybe they'll just go with a new coaching staff with the same roster and run it back. But this would be a major roster shakeup. If there were to be a Bradley Beal trade, you would imagine either Drew or Middleton would be going back to Washington in that trade. I don't know. Remember we talked, too, about Chris Middleton being a part of the hiring process for Adrian Griffin. Are they really going to do that, sign him to an extension, then trade him for Bradley Beal? When you look at Beal and Middleton or Beal and Drew – Is there a net gain there? I don't know that there is. There's a part of me that does like the idea of a different look of the roster. I don't know how much I would love it in practice. Bradley Beal no doubt puts up numbers. Last year, not so good. Three years ago, he averaged over 30 points a game, and the year before that, he averaged over 30 points a game. He's a career 22-point-per-game guy, but so is Chris Middleton for the most part. He shoots about 45% from the field and about 38% from beyond the arc. That's exactly what Middleton does. What you probably gain a little bit here is in youth, where Beal is a couple of years younger than Middleton and three or four years younger than Drew. You would be getting younger, but Bradley Beal's contract is massive. And if you make this deal to bring Bradley Beal in, you're really handcuffed to that roster then for the next four or five years, barring another big trade. But there's not a whole lot you can do. If this doesn't work out, if you acquire Bradley Beal and you give up a big chip to get him and it doesn't work out and for whatever reason the cohesiveness isn't there, the chemistry isn't there, and they take a step back, then you're really in trouble. The thing I like about sticking with what they have is if they bring everybody back, 
That's a team that won a title together, that knows what it takes to get to the mountaintop. If you make a big swing and it doesn't work out and the chemistry isn't there on the floor and it's obvious after season one, then you gave up a chance to maybe win another championship with the caliber team, with that championship caliber team, to make a run with what? And to see it end that quickly and then you're backed into a financial corner? I don't know. There's just not a whole lot of upside that I'm seeing to it other than the appeal of a major roster shakeup and adding a big name for the next part of Giannis's prime. But if that's the option, I think I'd rather stick with Middleton or Drew. If you give up Drew, Bradley Beal is certainly a better offensive player than Drew, but he doesn't have any kind of defense that goes with that. So it just feels like a fall off. It feels like his numbers and Middleton's numbers are a push. So I don't know what you gain there other than two years younger. And it feels to me like Beal is slightly better offensively than Drew and slightly worse defensively. Again, it kind of feels like a push. I don't know what the overall gain would be for the Bucks if they were to make that deal. And then again, you look at Beal's contract, and it just is a nightmare once you get past the next year or two. He's owed like $50 million a year in 2024 and 2025. And then you add on to what you're going to have to pay Giannis to keep him there. I don't know. I just don't see a ton of upside for the Bucks, But I do believe the Bucks will be in on a lot of different conversations like that. Now, Dame Lillard, if you had the same scenario and Dame Lillard was rumored to be going to Milwaukee, that I think I would roll the dice on. If you had to give up Middleton or Drew, which you would, that one I would roll the dice on more. I think Dame Lillard is a notch above Bradley Beal. Bradley Beal is sort of like a poor man's version of Dame Lillard. Not poor, poor but middle-class version of Dame Lillard. If Dame were available, and Dame's age is a factor too, he's actually either the same age or older than Drew. He's older than Middleton. But if Dame was out there, that I think I would take the swing. I think I would take the gamble. I'd roll the dice if you could get Dame Lillard. I don't know that I'd do that for Bradley Beal. Buck's Twitter was very split on the idea. Some folks were very with it. Some folks, I think I'd throw myself into the latter camp, were saying, I don't really see a huge upside here. And if it doesn't work out, you are in a bad spot financially. Whereas if you just bring everybody back and it doesn't work out this year, you can probably unload a few players via trade and start to rebuild on the fly after the next upcoming year. I don't know. I don't know that I love the potential move for Bradley Beal. But that rumor was out there this week. All right. The U.S. Open is underway. John Rahm is our guy. We're rocking with the Spaniard. He got us the Masters ticket, second biggest ticket we've ever cashed. He was one under on Thursday, but the U.S. Open course on Thursday just got beat down. I'd like to report a crime. almost had to call 911. It was just unbelievable what guys were doing. The U.S. Open is notorious for only having a handful of people under par by the end of it, and maybe that will be the case. I have not looked a lot about what's going on today so far on Friday morning. Maybe they are going to readjust some of the whole locations to make things more difficult, but those guys were tearing that course up on Thursday. Ricky Fowler and Xander Shoffley both shooting 62s, both 8-under. I've got a couple of other tickets. I've got Rory at a top 10 finish. I've got Scotty Shepler at a top 10 finish, and I've got – who did I want? Oh, Victor Hovland. I've got a top 20 finish. Now, Xander Shoffley, I've been betting on him. I do my one bet for every major. Now it's becoming multiple bets. But I bet on one guy to win every major. I have bet on Xander Shoffley, I want to say, three or four times to win a major because it always feels like he's close. It feels like every leaderboard I look at, the guy is top 10, top 5 by the end of it, or second or third. He just has not been able to break through. And because of that and how consistent he is, 
I keep on betting on him because at some point he is going to win one. We had him as our bet for the PGA Championship where he finished, I think, 19th or 20th. If he wins this, so help me God, if he breaks through the one tournament, I'm not betting on him. We'll see how the rest of it goes, but man, 262's carded. Mickelson's under par. I'm pretty sure Phil, who's celebrating a birthday today too, I'm pretty sure Lefty only needs the U.S. Open to complete the career Grand Slam. That would be something. Remember how big of a moment that was the PGA Championship when he won it two years ago at 51 years old? If he got the career slam at 53 years old, I'm pretty sure he's 53 or 54 today. That would be a remarkable achievement, too. But, I mean, the whole field, it feels like, is under par. We'll see if they make any adjustments today. But Rom is our guy. And then we do have Rory, who was good on Thursday. Rory, top 10. What did I say? Rory, top 10. Scotty Shepler, top 10, who was the odds-on favorite to win. I got that at plus 120, I want to say. And then we also have Hovland, top 20. I'm not sure where Hovland is. Top 20 felt safe with him the way he's been finishing, though. But I can just see Xander Shoffley winning this damn thing. And we've been on him so many times, and he hasn't come through or hasn't, or he's been close to coming through but hasn't gotten that championship. I could just see him taking it on Sunday the one time we don't bet on him. But what an incredible first round for him and Ricky Fowler in the U.S. Open. Love it. And I love primetime golf, too. I love how the U.S. Open has that component, too, where there's some rounds that are wrapping up at 7 or 8 o'clock at night. Love me some primetime golf. But that's who we're watching. Rom to win it. Not looking super likely right now. Top 10, Scheffler. Top 10, McElroy. Top 20, Victor Hovland. And then finally today, we'll wrap up on Justin Jones and the Chicago Bears. I'm hoping this audio is going to come through a little clearer than I recorded it earlier this week. You may have seen Packer fans, Bears tackle, defensive tackle, Justin Jones. You may be saying to yourself right now, who? Everybody was saying that earlier in the week. After a Bears practice, he had this to say about Packers, the Packers and Packer fans. How different is it going to be now that Aaron Rodgers is somewhere else? Uh, I wish he played one more year with uh, Green Bay. Honestly, uh, <clears throat> we went up there and uh, we played a we played a pretty good game, you know. But uh, they got away from us at the end, obviously, and uh, they won. But their fans are really shitty. So, um, yeah, I, I wanted to go back up there and I wanted to play them and I wanted to beat them and I wanted him to be there so you can see it. But the fact that he's gone now, you know, I mean, it's, it's cool. I guess it's better for him not to be here, you know. But um, but yeah, man, I'm. I'm, I'm ready to take it over. I mean, it's a good time to be a Bears fan. I'm not even going to lie to you. Uh-huh. So. This is a follow-up question I never thought I'd ask. In which ways are they shitty? Man, like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, man, like, just, just the way that they're just freaking obnoxious, just yelling and all that other stuff about things that don't even matter. Like, we're not even running, we're not even running to play. You guys are talking about, oh, oh yeah, go great. Like, what, what are we even talking about? He hasn't even started yet. Like, what are we even talking about here? Like, you know, y'all. Half of them don't even know football. It's, it's, it's so weird to me. How dare you, sir? Now, if you're like me, you probably had to Google who the heck Justin Jones even was. Justin Jones in five NFL seasons has a gentleman seven and a half sacks, and he had 28 tackles and three sacks last year. He may get cut before the year even begins. Now, look, I love trash talk, and I think a lot of fans, Packer fans and Bears fans, You want to see that rivalry ignited a bit more. This is going to sound very pompous, and I understand that it's going to sound that way before I even say it. Packer fans have been in such a catbird seat in this rivalry because the Packers have won. It's nothing the fan base is doing. I get that. It's just been Hall of Fame quarterback play. But that has taken some of the luster off of this rivalry because Favre dominated the Bears and then Rodgers dominated the Bears. I own you. I still own you. 
and I love a good trash talk between two fan bases, between two players from historic rivals. So I don't not like Justin Jones chirping. I wish it would have come from a player with a little bit bigger of a resume. Now imagine if Brian Urlacher would have said that in the mid-2000s or late-2000s or going into the NFC Championship game in 2010. Then you're getting somewhere. Then you're really cooking. I don't know how much that stokes the fire Justin Jones saying those things, but I do love trying to stoke up the rivalry. I do have to laugh, too. I think we talked about this on a podcast maybe right after the Rodgers trade, but you can tell. We've got Bears fans in our building here. You can just tell the Bears and Lions and Vikings fans right now are getting a little cocky. They've got a little bit of hubris now that Aaron Rodgers is out of the division. And that beginning part of that quote where Justin Jones says, oh, I wish Rodgers was still there. Oh, I'm sure you do. It's like the bully leaving town. The bully from school the year before went to a school in a different city, and then the next guy says, oh, I wish he was still here. I wish that guy was still here. I wish he was here to see what I'm doing now. No, you don't. <laughs> you don't. You don't want the boogeyman moving back to town. It's a very convenient. It's like fighting with you. Hold me back. Hold me back. Somebody hold me back. I thought that was a very funny quote from Justin Jones during the course of the week. Good. I want to see the rivalry be fired up a little bit. Can you imagine if Jordan Love walks in there opening weekend, 325 kickoff at Soldier Field and beats the breaks up of Justin Fields? Oh, my God. That might be better than any of the recent Rodgers wins over Chicago if that happens in week one. But that was a storyline this week as well. All right, we'll get back after it on Monday, hopefully recapping a series win. I am putting money on the Brewers to win the series against the Pirates. The Brewers are minus 115, I think, to win the series. I'm taking it. They're due. They play well against the Pirates at home. They don't play well at PNC. It feels like they're due to break up the losing streak, get a series win, hopefully get yourself back on track, and we'll be recapping that potentially on Monday, or we'll be ignoring it. It'll also be NBA Draft Week when we get cranked up. We'll recap the U.S. Open as well. Have a happy, safe weekend. We'll chat with you then.